This is Discussions on the Firewater Network, where we talk to those crafting the future of the spirits industry. And now, here's your host. This is Zachary Farley. Our regular listeners will notice that this episode is slightly different than our others. Usually, we record our interviews on-site with the distiller. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Alex Nickel of the Edinburgh Gin Distillery. Now, while I wish I could have taken the entire Firewater team on a trip to Edinburgh, Scotland for this interview, we're just going to have to rely on modern technology to bridge the distance today. As such, our interview with Alex will be conducted over Skype. Please forgive any audio abnormalities. Lastly, I'd like to thank Tim Master of Frederick Wildman and Sons for helping connect us for this interview. With that said, I'd like to welcome Alex of Edinburgh Gin in Edinburgh, Scotland. Thanks for joining me today, Alex. How are you doing? Nice uh, to talk to you. Doing well, thank you. So, Alex, tell me about your distillery. What are you building at Edinburgh Gin? We have a small distillery right in the center of Edinburgh by Princess Street underneath a Rutland place. It's in the basement. It used to be a disreputable nightclub, but we've uh, changed all of that now. We still have a, a nice cocktail bar there, and they're called Heads and Tails. But it's underground, and you can go and have a dry martini at the bar and watch us distilling any time of the day. We have a visitor center from 10 o'clock in the morning till 4 in the afternoon every day, and at 5 o'clock it transforms into a bar, but we're still distilling at the same time. You can see us behind the glass windows there, and those are very, very strong glass windows. <laughs> I hope so. We've been very careful in making sure that we are the safest distillery you'll ever, ever be. All of our, our stills are ATEX rated. If there's a fire behind there, it will burn for five hours at a huge temperature until the glass then shatters, but you'll be out of there by then. <laughs> We're very, very careful about quality of spirit. We work, and we're the only distillery in the UK to have this, on a KTP. It's a knowledge transfer partnership that we started with two years ago with the Harriet Watt School of Distilling. It's the only university in the UK that's brewing and distilling courses. And what KTP is, is, is essentially we have access for the next three years now in this process to all of their professors, all of the gas spectrometers you can find, and they help us for the next three years on identification of historical recipes, evaluation of botanicals, distillation of uh, botanicals and the performance, etc. And our, all of our distillers are MSC qualified distillers. That's really cool. So not only are you fully operational commercial distillery, creating a product that is now on the global marketplace, but you're actually kind of training the next generation of distillery professionals. More than that, I've just purchased a new thousand litre still, which will be active in April. And we are citing it at the university within Edinburgh and in their campuses, their R&D campus, but it's commercial. Hmm. But we will, as part of our, our process with the university, we, we will allow their students to come in and see how it works. And when they get familiar with it, we will train them up as well. But we won't pay them. So they, they, <laughs> it's Scotland, after all, we're not going to pay them for nothing. You pay it's them in education, right? That's all a student really wants. So. <laughs> that's exactly what they want. We have a, a distillery centre, we have a visitor centre, which we're getting more and more visits to. We, we say it, it gets uh, five stars and triple advice. And that's important to us to ed educate the public. But then again, the kids who, who oh, well, kids are kids of 30-somethings, they love coming out and demonstrating what they can do. You can make your own gin there and small pot stills. And they love coming out and saying, well, look, this is what we can do with your gin. So how, what type of gin do you like? Do so you like it um, citrusy? Do you like it floral? Do you like it dry? We'll have to have juniper in it because that's gin. Anything without juniper in it doesn't qualify as being gin. <laughs> and after that, you can play with it. So you can make your own gin and take it away in two hours. Which wow. Is 
was hugely popular. We charge seventy-five pounds for that. Other people charge hundreds, but we charge seventy-five because we want more people to do it. Sure. I mean, experimental work today, as I told you, we've just bottled, and I'm sorry, no one else can see it probably, but this is Edinburgh Valentine's Day gin, and uh, it's fantastic. It, it, the, the pink colour in there comes from fresh rose petals and hibiscus, which has been days in it. We only made 300 bottles, but we did it just to showcase the students, really, and showcase what our pe- people can do. And we've got lemon balm in this, chamomile, uh, some lemon grass, as well as juniper. Wow. So I really want to get into kind of how you do your taste making and, and how you come up with your new flavors in a little bit. But first, let's just take a quick step back. You've been in the spirits industry for a bit. <laughs> I started, oh God, when was I started in 84. I was working for um, Whitbread, who were a brewer, but they had spirits interest. So I was sent up to, worked on the Freud for a while in 85, hmm. Long John, and I did, what was that, Scoresby? God, yes, we originated Scoresby and stuck into mainly 1.75 litre bottles. Oh my goodness, <laughs> a little little craft brand called Scoresby. You couldn't bloody make it up, no, it was very strange. And for, for people of a certain age living in Florida. Um, <laughs> but Lafroig was, was very interesting. And then I worked for Beefy to Gin and uh, when we bought them and, and Plymouth Gin and worked down there with them. They're a very interesting time. And after that, I'd be a marketing director for Glen Morangy. <laughs> came back to Scotland in 1990. Yeah, God, a long time ago, 24 years ago. Jesus, yes. Well, let's not do the maths, okay. <laughs> I know it's a marketing director for Glen Morangy. Uh, we were working with Brian Foreman at the time in the States, and we developed then the finishes range, which would become ubiquitous in the, in the whiskey industry. But yeah. it's a very, very scientific basis. I worked with a guy called Jim Swan, who is the most underrated man in the spirits business. And it was about how we could determine the flavor profiles of whiskey through selection of wood and toasting and charring. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. And that, that was a five-year project. That was fascinating. And that got me really interested in flavor profiles without chucking in gummy bear sweeties into <laughs> You can get great flavors from sensing of botanicals and gin. And it's as interesting as what we do with, with whiskey barrels. I mean, we got to the point in Glenmorangie where we were specifying white Ozark wood from a certain area. <laughs> wow. It wasn't just oak versus another kind of wood. It was literally, this oak needs to grow in this area to deliver this kind of flavor that we're looking for. The level of toasting and charring within that barrel is important. And finally, where you actually, uh, the maturation houses, I mean, the matura- the, where it came from, I, I don't want to bore you, but where it came from was um, post-war, Second World War, mm-hmm. but popular because it was the drink of celebration in, in, in post-war Europe. And so the demand for it was huge. And what happened then was people built new maturation warehouses, which weren't the old thick wall places. They were corrugated iron, thin okay. wall. What happened then was they really weren't expecting this, but they, they were just going for growth, was the vast temperature swings. So it was very hot in the summertime and very cold in the wintertime. And it opened and closed the wood so quickly it exhausted it. So where were you getting three 10-year-old fills at more whiskey distilleries in the past? Mm-hmm. 10-year-old fill, and it was white, and it was no good to us. And so we had to be very careful where the, that wood came from. So we had to go back and specify, was it Heaven Hill? Was it whichever bourbon distillery it was? You had to then make sure that it was in the same temperature swings and you had to look at the level of vanillins, for example, that were left in the barrel. You can do that. You can determine. Okay. Then, you had, then you had to go and look at the bluegrass cooperage or whoever it was in Louisville, Kentucky, to see how they were making them, what staves were like, could they replace the staves? It was, it was just, it was, it was, it was interesting. And, and we did lots of experimental work at Morangy with cherry wood and all sorts of things. Cherry wood doesn't work at all. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't breathe at all. I mean, you, you, need, you need oak barrels because that breathes. Right. And, and if you're maturing by the sea, you'll get a saline uh, part too as well. So yeah. it, 
Brent, for, for my lifelong um, fascination has been with flavors and where they come from and trying to avoid just dumping flavors in there and never be able to replicate them. So mm-hmm. it's always been fascinating for me how you take a white spirit and you can, through judicious measures and through practicing what you do, you can recreate and create again different flavors. So I guess that kind of answers my next question. You know, why leave the big brands behind and start your own craft distillery? But you're working with gin in Edinburgh, gin. Like you said, it's, it's a white spirit and you really can play with flavors and, and kind of get feedback immediately as opposed to the long aging time that a barrel takes. It, it really seems like it would play into your curiosity and your fascination. Be weed and motto at Beefy, you probably still have it, which is not a drop sold till it's cold. <laughs> okay. In the whiskey business, you had to wait three years and then blend day minimus. And you could have something going for 10 years, it becomes very valuable, and then it turns, it gets sulfury. So what do you do? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So very careful about where you mature it and the wood you use. Mm-hmm. But to answer your question around the way, yeah, I, th- I think it's got huge potential. We haven't really scratched the surface on what we'd like to do beyond gin, Scottish eau de vies, things like that, growing our own botanics for it, etc. Yeah. Really interesting. I mean, I, working with the Royal Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh at the moment to see what botanics they'd like to grow and see if we could, we could do something together. We're at very preliminary stages of that. But that's why the knowledge transfer process that I've embarked with, with Harry Watt, who's the, as I said, the only school of distilling where you can get qualified distillers in the UK. We're the only distillery I'm aware of that has a, a KTP with a knowledge transfer partnership. Yeah. Let me ask you, what was it like getting started with a distillery in an mm-hmm. urban place, in a densely populated area, what was your biggest hurdle to getting up and running? Because usually distilleries are located either out in the country or they're located in an industrial park somewhere <laughs> where, you know, if something bad happens, there's nobody around. But your operation is underneath where people are walking and buses are going by. What was that like? Careful. We have taken time to write a set of protocols which will not allow anything to happen there. Having said that... That, that's tempting providence. But we, yeah, we, let's all knock on wood for that one. Uh. We've been very careful. As I said, we, we have um, played glass in there. You can, you can sit at the bar and have a martini and watch it being done. We take it in and out in only 60-litre um, drums. We don't take it out big style in IBCs of 1,000 litres. We're very careful with it. And our bottling at, at the back is like a hobbit hole. You, know, <laughs> you, you close the door, it's fireproof completely. We, all of our, if you're aware of how you lay it out, all of our still houses zone one, which is so unusual. Our um, stills of ATEX rating, that's an extra £30,000, $50,000. Yeah. Everything we do in there is written up. And as I say, no one goes in there without, you can't make a phone call in there. (laughs) That's that's verboten. And it's there to show people, there's so many people, there isn't anything else like it in town. So it's there for Edmund to come down and see. And we've had a lot of people coming down to have a look. Mm -hmm. People now coming down to have a look. And and we love it. So we've had to organize and regiment people's visiting. That we, We do six tours a day, half an hour a tour, or we do a different tour where you can make your own gin, it takes two hours, you, have, you can get behind the stills, you can do various things. Yeah. And, uh, as I said, the, the second phase, which will kick in in April, May, is having a, a new 1,000-litre still out at Ariat Watt, hopefully, with their blessing in their R&D um, park, research and development park out there, so that we'll be on site. Still, we're very commercial. We will be doing what we always do, but we will be doing it within the university, and, and we'll, we'll become that bit further advanced because you know we will then have the optimization of the Edinburgh gin production in a new distillery which is it, it's fully documented and staff trained and it, it, we're not messing about you know 
Yeah, so people can come in and they can see. It's not just that the students themselves can see what a real distillery run by professionals look like. It's the public can also come in and see what it really takes to make a high-quality spirit. But also, this is not for messing around, right? This is a very serious undertaking. And don't just start it up in your garage or something. You have to really consider things like fire hazards and all that. Yeah, because you can kill people. (laughs) The the regulations in the UK that came about after a a Piper Alpha disaster in the North Sea a number of years ago, about 20 years ago, where people lost their lives because they they, they were handling chemicals which had a very uh, ABV. Now, if you're distilling to 80 degrees, that's highly flammable. A spark can set that off. So there are regulations that that don't allow you to do that without having ATEX equipment in there. We followed all of that. Mm -hmm. It's a very important process to go through. I mean, we have a lot of fun doing it, but I think you, you've got to be serious. If you're, off, if you're making something for the general public, you've got to be serious about that. And if you're making something where people are sleeping at night, yeah. then you've got to be serious about that as well. So, but in general, we have a lot of fun there. Yeah. But it's professional. Yeah, I'd rather say, rather than boring, we are professional. <laughs> Very cool. Let me ask you this question. You know, beyond by being in an urban space like you are, it really allows the public to come in. It allows for the knowledge transfer program with the university. And it it opens you up to just great exposure and gets people familiar with your brand. But I'm always kind of curious, by being within the city, does it have other benefits? Like, is water access good for you? Do you just use municipal water supply? Do you have to treat it? Is waste removal a pos- you know an easier thing because you are... We're in a, in a municipally serviced area. The drains have to be able to take any waste you, you have or you take it away. <laughs> and if we've done too much work over the weekend, we haven't disposed of it properly, then we'll put it into 60-litre drums and take it away to be disposed. Oh, my gosh. And, and at the long day of distilling, that's probably the last thing you want to do is start loading everything up into a drum. And <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and everything gets cleaned away at the end of the shift and you have to wash out the stills. And there's a big process involved in that. Mm-hmm. And Steeping too long. We have, <laughs> we have, we yeah, we have protocols for all of that. But you have to be very, very careful what you're doing. I mean, if you're distilling in your garden or in your garage or somewhere out in the in the hills, you tend to get a bit more flamboyant, shall we say, and do what you want. But probably not a great idea. Probably not a great idea. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I spoke to one with one distiller here who said the most valuable thing in his distillery are his floor drains. It's not something many people think about, but when they're sitting down and they're actually designing out a distillery, always make sure you have floor drains because things will get spilled and you want to be able to clean it up quickly. Absolutely. And the floor has to be very... Um, you don't want just a slight slippery floor. You'll be all over the place. Mm. We've got uh, triple laid floors there which grip your shoes to make sure that there's no real... Or we minimize the, the, the accident potential. Wow. And uh, yeah, and our water, to, we usually demin the water, demineralize it before we start. Now, you kind of mentioned it earlier, but you have constructed a real top flight visitor center. You allow people to come in, they get to craft their own craft gin. You know, that's a, clearly a part of your business strategy. Is that also kind of the biggest part of your marketing strategy? Well, yeah, we don't tend, like everybody these days, we don't advertise on, on paper very much anymore. Mm-hmm. The strongest way for a brand to survive and, and, and go is word of mouth. I think the on-premise is so important. Good people who are knowledgeable behind the stick doing a bit of work and their homework in their brands, that's really important. People who have got a decent palate to, to can tell a bad spirit from a good spirit, that's important. Um, I think digital media is important. Uh, it can be a bit confusing and I, I'm not sure that I like people critiquing brands when they are milkman by the day and bloggers at night. <laughs> I hate me saying that, but it's an, an odd area. I welcome everyone's freedom of expression. 
but it can be very dangerous as well with people who feel that they're able to kill a brand sometimes and I, I'm shocked at that you know or a restaurant or whatever you want you know but if someone I saw some blogs recently on a, a which was about a, a new restaurant that opened a very good restaurant there's one Edinburgh it opened in uh, Glasgow and uh, the lady blogger who was there made a complete scene at the at the, <laughs> at the, uh, the restaurant and gave it a terrible review really Oh, yeah, and, and, and it, it hurt. I mean, I don't know if legal action should be taken, but it's just be careful. Right, I and mean, we're all entitled to our opinions, and you can write, I don't like it, but then to try to destroy a brand just because it didn't agree with your palate, yeah, yeah it, that's kind of the danger of the digital media and, and relying on it too much. You, the thing is, it's immediate, you know, if something happens. I mean, I, I, I bottled this uh, Valentine's Gin today, stuck the label on today, and tomorrow we, we'll have people coming down to the distillery saying, can I buy some? And say, sure. Yeah. Now, it happened five years ago. It's happening now. I bet you were people coming down to the bar tonight and saying, can I try, try some, some straight Valentine's gin? And I don't think we've told the bar staff. Yeah, you <laughs> How do they know about it? <laughs> they all tasted it, but, uh, you know, it's just, it, it, the digital age is great. I think it's fantastic, and it's very powerful. Your tasting room staff isn't just any old person who can pour a quarter-ounce shot or whatever your taste is. They're people who actually are versed in the gin itself and, and can really converse about it. They're kind of your brand ambassadors sitting out there talking to the public as they come in. There's a mix, actually, because we have um, qualified historians that have gone through the history of gin, the history of Edinburgh gin, and then we have people who, some people's olfactory system are better than others, you know, you can taste. So we don't major on that too much, because that, that, that's getting a bit too anal for it. We want to give people, it's, it's an experience that they can love it or hate it, but they'll rem remember it. I think people are more and more into experiences than before, and that's so important when you're, if you're going to make some gin. Yeah. You want to be on it, you know, but, and if you want to come in for a cocktail, a cocktail's all about flavor experiences, and, and, and you can't be too dictatorial about what's right and what's wrong. I know what gin tastes like. Mm -hmm. Again, if I want to make a Scottish eau de vie, which we, we're in the process of looking at, then we better be, it shouldn't be hit and miss. It, it sh we shouldn't be saying things like, let's try this. <laughs> if, <laughs> No, that's why we just, as part of our process, we take a set of Scottish botanicals, for example, and then we would distill them individually and then bottle them so that we can refer to it again. It's like mixing perfume in a way. So you, you can go back to it and say, right, mm -hmm. this is how we want to blend it. What do you think? You can actually physically with a tea pipette blend it yeah. if you want. I mean, we're developing new gin formulations. There are candidate botanicals for new product development, which we know already what it tastes like. So it's not like, well, let's throw some of that in. Let's throw some of this in. You know, like all the capsaicin or something. Let's make a really peppery thing. You know how to start off with some basic ideas on on how flavors play with each other and how they interact with each other. It's not a blank canvas every time you start. Absolutely, and it's lab scale to start with. If we're getting a commercial production every year of say two new gin varieties, and we're happy with them, that's enough for me. This year we'll probably be doing one, two, three, four. Wow! But they won't all be commercial for for commercial production. So, for example, the Valentine's gin, we've done three hundred bottles worth. Um, oh. over the week, we can do another 300 if we really successful. Or we can just put it to one side and go, we've done that. We were looking at, it's no secret, we're looking at some seaside gin at the moment, some Scottish seasides. Really? Uh, yeah, for, 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 a, for a sort of spring-summer launch, just to see what we can do in playing with. I'd love to do a vermouth. Yeah, <laughs> a vermouth, really? That's not really in our remit, but I, I just like to play with it. It's not commercial. <laughs> Well, that's kind of the great thing about being um, 
you know, you could never do that at Glen Moragi or Beef Eaters. When you're making millions of gallons a year, you can't tinker, you know, you can't play around with your formula because it's a whole industrial process. But being smaller scale like you are, you really can play around in the lab and then do a limited production, 300 bottles, and it won't throw off your entire production schedule. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You got it right there, Zachary. But here's the thing. I then think that Beef Eater or Diageo cannot complain that we craft distillers are growing faster than them because their job is to innovate. They've got enough money to do it, but we've taken that role off them. And the consumer, I guys to the consumer is, I want to try something new. The consumers in a new category to some people, young people, are highly promiscuous. They'll go from one batch to the next batch to the other batch, and they'll go to Gordon's, and they'll say, mm-hmm. no, Dad used to drink that. And Gordon's really should be or Diageo should be cutting edge more than they are with, with, their, with their products, I believe. That's a really they, good point. But they've allowed us to take that mantle because they're too busy producing 6 million gallons for Ohio. Right. <laughs> Let's kind of talk about the products you do make then, the, the ones that are on the uh, shelves right now. What kind of gin, so the traditional Edinburgh gin, not one of your special creations, how would you describe that? What is your flagship product? I think it's a very clean a citrusy, juniper-forward product. And I like it. It's slightly floral as well. We've had some additional botanics in there, which are uh, pine, milk, this, and heather. Uh, unusual. Hmm. But I, it gave it that sort of clean uh, aroma. Well, what does heather do? I've never, I don't know if I've ever really had that in a gin before. It's slightly tannic and it's floral. It's like hibiscus is. Hibiscus is, is what we would call floral. I think it works very well in gin because most gin is drunk with tonic or these days, more and more in cocktails, but if it's as straight gin and tonic as 99.9% of the people would ask for in a bar, mm-hmm. this is very interesting. And, 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 and this new Valentine's gin we've done, with, which has been infused with hibiscus, really comes through and it works very well in tonic. We're actually, that's one thing we're looking at doing is our own tonic. And I'll tell you something, I was in Rhode Island and I'm embarrassed. I can't remember the name of the bar, but I went there a couple of times. Yeah. The bar guy there was very good and uh, I'm embarrassed. I've got his card somewhere, but... Off the top of my head, I can't remember. He was making a sort of a rhubarb infusion in tonic, and I thought, I'm going to steal that. I might make it, and it's very good. You know, yeah. So it's about like, but, but you'd use fresh rhubarb. For example, I, use, I have a range of um, liqueurs. We have rhubarb and ginger, we have elderflower, and we have a range of them. But we've all got one thing in common. They're all from Scotland, and that we use fresh product. Hmm. For example, our raspberry, the raspberry um, gin liqueur, we source all the raspberries in Perthshire from, we know, the grower. Yeah. It's a huge seller for us, but all it is, is is gin, raspberries, and a bit of sugar. And people use it in cocktails a lot, and they drink it. My mother-in-law loves it. Yeah. (laughs) I saw that on your website uh, as one of the things you did. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your raspberry gin. How do you balance something like the sweetness of a raspberry? Or I guess raspberries are also kind of tart and higher concentrations with the dominant taste of something like juniper. How do you kind of balance all that out? That seems like it's a very delicate dance that you have to do. It is. We use the same gin that you would drink in a gin and tonic as the base gin. Mm-hmm. But then we add fresh fruit and it's weighed out. And then we add uh, um, sugar and it's weighed out and it's macerated. And then we leave it and then we sieve it through a 10 micron sieve filter. Oh, well, uh, so you get all the little particles out? To- yeah. No one likes the little particles. <laughs> Which I quite like it, but... Yeah, people would question your process or something if you, if you want to show... But you, you want to show them, no, this is like real fresh fruit. You didn't use any flavorings or any additives to it. We have the same with rhubarb. You have to extract the rhubarb. We, we get rhubarb from Inverness. The ginger comes from God knows where, but the rhubarb mm-hmm. comes from... 
and it's nicely balanced. And people experiment with it. They love it. And don't deny them. I mean, if, if that's their favorite, God bless you. Go and have some more. And we can <laughs> for it. But I mean, predominantly, the distillery doesn't deal with that. We, we deal with, with straight gins. But I, I enjoy playing with, with liqueurs and good quality liqueurs. I mean, there's some awful liqueurs in the market. But if you've got fresh fruit and good quality product, it's not going to kill you. It's great. And I... <laughs> And Granny and I will have, she'll use tonic. I try and make her use soda, but she'll, she'll take some raspberry okay. ice and some soda. And that's her, you know, that's, that's perfect. One or two of them. <laughs> One or two of those and that's it. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> well, I do think that's what's kind of, what, that's the great thing about the craft movement right now is it really is allowing producers to reintroduce the public to spirits that the public may think that they don't like, but that's only because they've only ever been exposed to mass-produced, perhaps very badly produced spirits. You know, for example, liqueurs. A lot of people would say, yeah, I don't really like... Whatever. Whatever yeah, so. it is. Yeah, and it's like, well, you've only, ever had one, you've only ever had one kind of it. Maybe you just don't like that one. And what you're saying is with your liqueurs, you can actually distill in these very subtle flavors and really expand what it means to be a liqueur. Especially with younger people. We do about 40 events every year, 50, 60, 40, whatever it is. My daughter runs that. We, we will have sampling. So you, you go to the event, there's our big table, threshold table set up, and we encourage, actively encourage people to come and try things. Mm-hmm. Repeatedly, they say, I didn't know I liked gin. <laughs> I don't. And I, then it's, I didn't know I liked gin. I said, well, it's how you drink it, what you have with it, the quality of the tonic you use, if it's straight gin, can you drink it straight? Or why not try this liqueur? It's gin-based, but it will taste of raspberries for you. And it's fresh. Yeah. And it's really interesting. You try it with sparkling wine, try it with soda. What time of the day it is, it, it, all, it all makes a difference of what you might require. Mm. It's not all just the um, cheap stuff you could afford when you were in college and that's when you decided you didn't like it. <laughs> it's actually a grown-up thing. Well, drink enough till you started liking it, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. So how do you develop your flavors then? Do you use a tasting panel? Do you bring in your family? Whose opinions do you solicit to make sure that you're not just producing 6,000 gallons of something only Alex is going to want to drink? Well, we, we, we work with the university. They have a technical team there. We review the new product development program. We review... And Virginia's development production all the time. And we identify any gaps in our knowledge for that. So a new product, we'd use our own staff and we get to a point where we've got options. Hmm. We, uh, we'll use pilot batch production of Edinburgh Gin or derivatives of, and then we'll, we, we will bottle it into, say, for example, six bottles for the new, uh, any new product or take the Valentine's Gin or something like that. We, we, then we will put it through sampling but the sampling can't just be people who are shut in a room in a white coat we got our neighbors to come in and try it as well right and begin to edmund let the bar guys taste it there and they'll say yes or no or whatever and that's really interesting if you catch the bar guys early enough <laughs> early enough right before they've uh, sampled too many other things <laughs> no, i'm not suggesting they do that but it's it, as long as there's not enough people there or you or you take it off business and put it into you invite people to it at, at the end if it's really important i would take people into a separate space and give them it to try and against other brands, but no more than three. Hmm. And so what they're, they're, they're talking about. So there's that, but what we've addressed already, you know, distillation strength and the change parameters with new botanicals and, and, and the quantity of botanicals used per you know, volume in the distillate and the distillate strength. So we know about that, What we wouldn't do to, to, we don't want to get losing. So we wouldn't want it to be too high when we've had problems with that before mm-hmm. in, in our, so we, and we've got specifications for that. Uh, not that we're boring, but we are scientific on it. We use gas spectrometers to replicate things that we have to. But I guess that your attention to detail and your attention to process, I would imagine, allows you to create a consistent product from batch to batch. Because I do think 
the flip side of craft oftentimes is this is a fantastic bottle I had once. And I went to the store and I bought another bottle, the exact same label, and it tasted different. I didn't like it. What ha- you know, I think that replicability is one of the things that craft people need to kind of catch up on. What you did is break the rules. Hmm. What you did is good, but if you can't replicate it, don't do it in the first place. Unless you say, I can't replicate it. If there's something, here's the thing. Sometimes, and this is just as it happens, you have to explain this, the raspberry-based gin liqueur that we do is lighter than other times. Now, and I had to go through with my supplier why this happened. And he told me, it's very interesting. He said, when we pick the fruits, when at the time of the year we pick them, if it's summertime, they will be heavier. And if it's earlier in the year, springtime, it will be lighter. Hmm. So when we're selling you all the fruits, I should tell you to mash them all together if you want it. And then you get a, a, a single color. But it doesn't work that way. You know, it's like if you go to Poland, you can get potato vodka that tastes different from the four seasons. Because the potatoes are different. Right, potato, that, climate's different. Yeah, yeah. I'm not against it being different, as long as you can explain why it's different. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the fun of it. But if you're doing something that you're selling to somebody and they like it, and you can't reproduce it, then that's not fair. Right, and, and it's bad for you too, because you've almost had a lifelong customer, perhaps, and now you've kind of lost them because of process. There are brands that change their recipes without consulting consumers, and they lose and, and they've been quite famous recently for brands doing it. Mm-hmm. And that once that spark goes off, all the guys jump on the bandwagon and say, no, it's, it's useless, isn't it? Well, let's talk a little bit about your bottle design, if you don't mind. I'm always interested. How did you come up with the shape of your bottle? Did you work with a consultant or did you just kind of go with something you liked? I didn't care about the design too much. It's wrong of me to say that now, but <laughs> you can see it. I've got it in my hand here. And it's great, but here's the problem with it. That as I evolve with it, and I should have known this before, I love the bottle size. It's nice and heavy. It's Italian. And it's got issues built into it. And I'll tell you why I'm saying this in a second. Um, the issues are handling it by people with small hands behind a bar. Okay. Weight of it in transporting it. It's a lovely bottle. It's very expensive. But everyone's using a similar dumpy bottle like this. And I briefed a new bottle in some time ago. And I'll have it ready for April. It's, again, it's Italian glass. But this time we've etched Edinburgh Gin into it. It's taller. It's slightly slimmer. So you can get your hand around it. It's engraved at the bottom. So you get a decent grip on it. And I think it's worth doing that. I met a guy in Los Angeles at a bartender's USBG event. It was for another, I got some whiskeys as well. I do pig's nose whiskey and cheap dip. But, mm. And I was talking to, to this guy, Simon. He said, look, uh, I'm doing these bottles. I, he's a bar guy. And they are ergonomically designed, he told me, to, so that you can do, it's easy to pour with. And you can see how much you're doing a stock day. You can see how much you've used. And I thought, it's very clever. I must do that. And that's when I started thinking about Let's get a better bottle that people can handle easier. It stands up more proud on the back bar and it sticks out. And I've got a new label, which I find designed by Stranger and Stranger, who I use quite a bit. And it's, it's cutting edge in terms of embossing and debossing paper. That's all I can tell you. Okay. It is important, in, in, both ergonomically and aesthetically, to have something that works. I like to ask that question because I think it's important to really think about how you envision your spirit to be used and making sure your bottle contributes to that. Like you said, if you're making a spirit that you want bartenders to use, make it bartender friendly. Don't really think about the neck length and the the width of the bottle itself. And this bottle isn't bartender friendly. Mm. What kind of closure do you you use? Do you use a synthetic cork or a natural? This is another thing. I tell everybody this. Do not use a natural cork on white spirit. It taints it. It will taint it. Okay. Eats it and, and it taints it. And what it tends to do is turn it yellow. And that doesn't look good. That doesn't look good (laughs) for a clear spirit. 
You've got to be, so synthetic, synthetic stopper is critical. Mm, it's great to know. Let's talk about your stills. Where do you source your stills from? How did you uh, decide on, on the ones to use? I use Carl from Stuttgart. I use them, not because I'm loyal to Carl or anything, they have their own inherent problems. Uh, you got a bit of leakage to start with. Hmm. Your support could have been better, but the good quality, they made the German made. And I knew that I could, where I was fitting them into, this is the downside of a central urban location, is where I was fitting them into was interesting. And that my taller of the two stills is built to fit into the space. It, go, you, it looks like it's going up to the street, but it's actually fitting into a hole at the top to make it as high as I possibly could. Okay. And the two fits into a space as well. So they're, they're constrained by the space that I'm there. But the Germans can do that. If you go to the more agricultural... <laughs> agricultural, for <laughs> yeah. And there's legion for there, many. If you go to the agricultural manual, which I've gone to for the thousand liters still, Hoga, I mean, they're very good. Mm-hmm. They're slightly but it does the job. And uh, that'll be, I'm going to put that out at the university and they're, they're not objecting to it. The trick is in the condenser and where you, if you can hang a basket in there and making it do, buying something that can do various, perform various features. Uh, I've got plates to the side there where we can actually redistill and clean anything, clean out the heads and tails, for example. So that we're, we're starting again, we're not wasting too much spirit. Hmm. Throw it away, heads and tails, but you certainly don't put it in the, in, in the finished spirit either. No. So you you clean what well, people do. People do. I've seen it, and so so you clean it and put it back in and, and redistill with new spirit. Uh, so you do do that because I've heard several distillers talk about doing that. You know, you paid money to create the heads and the tails. Why just throw it out? And there's still maybe some good spirit in there. Throw it back in for the next batch, and you'll still catch all the bad stuff as it comes off. Clean it, clean it off first, and then use it again. Yeah, mm-hmm. you do that. So that's absolutely what you should do. I believe. I don't know. Yeah, makes sense to me. <laughs> Let's go a little bit deeper into your knowledge transfer program then. So you have, you're building this new still out at the university. It's going to be able to do a lot more content mm-hmm. than the ones you have right now in downtown Edinburgh. What levels of program are you working with on the university? Is it just for distillation or is it a history program? Where do the students really fit in with Edinburgh Gin? It's the whole school of distilling, the professors that we've got there. We have, with this KTP, we have a project which we have agreed took us six months to write, basically, on and off. And it, it would start day one with reviewing Edinburgh's, Edinburgh Gin's development and production. So that's the most critical thing. So we start with the, the with base of Edinburgh Gin, and then we move through reviewing how the company's overall new product development program works and why it's doing it. And then we look at the, the um, we review new products and distillation. We review, we have a test pilot production as well, you know, and, and how we would run a commercial. You'd run a commercial distillery different to, 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 to an R&D distillery and, and, and the key outputs from that. Getting fully trained staff and documentation is critical. We're talking about that cool. We're saying you don't want to have a product you enjoy being changed by guys because they think it's fun. Yeah. You know, that's not going to happen. And we haven't started this. What we're, we're doing in this project is we're identifying and selecting historical gin recipes. And now finding those is hard enough. But we, we've been reviewing the literature through the years and understanding Edinburgh's history of distillation. I mean, the last still in Edinburgh was, was 1974, uh, which was a company called uh, Melrose Drover. But when I worked for Glenmorangie, we, we bought Crabby's and they had a still in there as well. It's all in Leith. Leith is the port of Edinburgh and that's where a lot of it okay. came they, 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 they would use fresh imported herbs and, and fruits as well. And they'd macerate gin. So orange gin was very popular in Victorian England. 
Lavender gin was very popular in Victoria. Lavender gin, interesting. And then fascinating. God knows what else. Probably laudanum. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there was all sorts of drugs going on for old ladies, you know, for sleeping drugs, things like that. Yeah, just put it in your gin. <laughs> it's one way to make sure you get it. <laughs> and you don't remember. Yeah. That's amazing. So who are these historians in that you're working with to try to find these old recipes? Where are they recorded? Where, where do you even start looking for historical gin recipes? You can get them in government archives. You can, honestly, you can talk to old distillers. You can get historical references. I mean, I, there's, there's a one reference that I got recently from a guy called Ian Buxton, who's a journalist and a friend of mine. He pointed out a recipe for when malt whiskey had gone over, it, it, it had become bad, if you like. What you had to do to it is, is get a, a, essentially a tea bag, an infusion, and dunk it into this whiskey that had gone off, and then add molasses and sugar and all sorts of things, raisins. And, really? uh, but the recipe's been recorded, and, and when I get round to it, I'm going to make a, a, a more whiskey liqueur, which takes that old recipe from 1725 and does it again. And so you, you've got something that's palatable. Oh, my gosh. Some, yeah, no, and that's, that's a real historic, that's really interesting. I, I, I'm guilty of saying that. I've had it above my desk for about <laughs> seven years, and I kept saying I'm going to do I've developed a label for it. <laughs> I haven't started it. I've been so busy doing other stuff. Sure, when you get a, when you get a quiet moment, you know, when you're not running a, <laughs> an education program, uh, multiple labels of uh, <laughs> alcohol and everything else. Yeah, I'll, I'll do it then. Yeah, then you'll get around to it. I'll well, send it to you. Please, I really, I mean, that sounds great. I, I think that that's what, you know, that's another thing I really think is fascinating about distillation, about distilling and the spirits business is it's a practice that's been going on for hundreds of years and yeah, thousands. And as, um, as advanced as technology has gotten, the science behind it really hasn't changed that much over the last few hundred years. It's all the same process. We we may use different heating methods to fire up a boiler and all that, but I mean, it's all the same. So we really can go back and take these old recipes, old ways of doing things and re recreate them almost exactly today. And by the same token, you can use vacuum distillation to play some tunes on it as well. There's all sorts of things you can do. And how you extract the flavors from the botanicals mm. is different. Well, how do you do that? Do, do you macerate your gins or do you use a vapor basket? How do you get your botanicals in? We do both. Okay. It, 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 I think it's more traditional to macerate, but we, we, we have a vapor basket as well. And there's lots of different ways of, of doing it. Usually, the maceration will take a, a 24-hour maceration. Very cool. Well, so let me ask you, now you've been in craft distilling for a while. What was kind of your proudest moment so far? When was that, you know, you, you leave the big boys, you decide to start up your own thing. When did you have that aha moment? Oh man, this is really happening. I might really have a product here. Do you kind of have a moment where you realize, yep, this was the right decision. I'm, I'm heading in the right direction. Nice. I, I think that's, if someone reaffirms what you're doing as being correct, that, that, that's what it would be. I don't, it was never that sort of, Damascene moment where you go, right, on the road to Damascus, I discovered this. No, mm -hmm. it was, it's more about it evolving because I'm too old for that. I mean, I, I'm 60. Mm -hmm. I, I, I had that with Glen Morangy when I was 30. <laughs> but where, where you go, Christ, it is all about the wood, really. It really is. And I can prove it. Huh. Uh, it was, I thought that was really exciting. But since, since then, people, you can move away from the, that path of, of it being about the wood. It, just pouring sherry into whiskey doesn't work as well. <laughs> yeah. You can tell when it's happened as well, because if you drink Mizuwari style in Japan, if you, I was doing a tasting years ago in uh, Brisbane, in Australia, and someone came up to me with, with a well-known Isla whiskey, which had been finished in sherry casks. 
you think that's nuts. That doesn't make any sense at all. And what we, I, I dumped some ice into it, and the whole thing separated because what? I shocked the whiskey into into the sherry coming away from the distillate, and you could smell underneath it the distillate was bad. So what they'd done was they did a duff cask, a cask that wasn't working, that had gone sulfurous, and they thought, oh shit, rather than <laughs> redistill, so valuable. Let's dump some Oloroso sherry in there and hope it works. Oh my God, really? <laughs> That's what happens. So you stray off the path of wood management into tampering with whiskey, which is not good. That's not good. No. And you don't want that getting, you know, you don't want to be known as a person who does that. <laughs> no, but you, if you name the names, they're, they're quite famous guilty people out there. Oh my gosh. Well, I, I want to keep you uh, out of the courts as much as possible, so I won't ask for those names right now. <laughs> Don't. I was on holiday, actually. This is interesting. This is accidental. I was on holiday about, oh, six years ago. The kids were we were down playing with our importer distributor uh, down there. And oddly enough, there was a gin distiller down there as well um, from Thames Distillers, and we were having a long chat about this and that. And, but then all their customers came in. Aromatis Sanchez was, 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 was the, the important in Jerez. And they came and went. We took a house at the beach. And I came back some days and talked to the, 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 the staff. So I'm always interested in the product. And they were showing us the, 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 the systems, Solera systems, et cetera, we're using there. And they said to me, we've got whiskey here. And I said, really? They said, yeah, we've got this whiskey here that's been maturing in Oloroso casks for oh, a number of years. And, uh, I did, and, and it tasted like agricole rum. I don't know if it tasted agricole rum. It's sweet. Yeah. It all, well, that's because it was maturing in Oloroso casks and in the heat of the rest. And they, a guy had brought it down there who'd gone bust. And so they had, <laughs> they didn't want to get rid of it. And so I, I, I made them an offer and bought the whole lot. Yeah. And took, yeah. And, and that was completely accidental. We called it Amoroso Oloroso. <laughs> and it was cute dip, Amoroso Oloroso. And it was fantastic. That's amazing. But, Kept some for myself, but that's just fortuitous. And it was it was it was all natural stuff that went on there. They weren't dumping sherry into it. Christ, they, they, they were using. They wanted the Oloroso casks back. They're so big, yeah. and they, they they just wanted rid of the whiskey. And and but when you take it around, people who maybe don't like whiskey, this is like sweeter. Then, but it was completely natural, and, and and it just opened whiskey up for them, which was great. You know, and uh, yeah, and, and it. It informed a new whiskey we've done called the Feathery, which is matured in, in, in Oloroso casks again, but in Scotland, not in Jerez this time. So it's much lighter. I mean, it's like a punch in the face or a slap around the ear. A slap around the ear is all lighter. But, but the, the, the Oloroso Amoroso is a full-blown full, full blown thing, and uh, it was fascinating. But that was just happenstance. Just happened to come across? That's amazing. And I assume you're all sold out of the uh, the original release. Then you've probably run out of that original cask that you came across. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, a friend of mine, Richard Patterson, is is a blender. And remember when we first started, I said, "Richard, anything different?" He said, "I've got this old cigar thing, Mole. That I don't know where it is. I think it's in a distillery near you." I went to find it. I knew the guy at the distillery. We eventually found it. <laughs> How much do you want for it? It's it's interesting because it was old Ard Beg that had been mixed with. How did he mix it? Sorry, I should know this. It was Ard Beg, Dalmore, and and Petaken, I think. I think it was Ardbeg, Dalmore, and Petaken, which had been blended and left to stand for another 15 years, something stupid. Oh my. Didn't find anything to do with it, and I called it Old Hebridean. It was the first new sheep dip expression in 30 years, and it was great, and we sold out to it really quickly. So if we do some, well, I've got a new one out, which is Sheep Dip Isla, and that uses most of the different Isla expressions. So again, it's about flavors, about taste, it's about Different. It sounds like you're having so much fun too, being able to go out and do all of that and not being afraid to try new things and put new things out. That's yeah, awesome. Well, I don't care as much as a 30-year-old guy. Yeah, okay. <laughs> what do you wish you 
kind of knew when you were first getting started that you know now. What do you wish you can go back and tell yourself 15 years ago as you're getting Sheep Dip started and, yeah. and you're getting your distilleries up and running? What, what would you tell yourself then if you could travel back in time? I think once I'd done what I did at Glenmorangie, I should have stopped and talked <laughs> to Jim Swan then and said, right, let's build a small distillery and we'll do gin, etc. And then got Desmond Payne from Plymouth and, and got him to join us. We, we'd, have, we'd have ruled the world. Uh-huh. Uh, but don't have as much courage when you've got no money. Okay, that's a good point. <laughs> so one of my final questions, uh, how has owning your own distillery changed how you go out to bars or restaurants or liquor stores? You know, can you go out to a bar and just relax and enjoy a cocktail? Or do you look behind the bar and see, oh, are they carrying Edinburgh here? I've never done that. I, I, you know, in all my life, and in, 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 in it's over 30, 30 years. Jesus Christ, yeah, it's at least 30 years. You never go into a bar if you're in the business and, and don't look what's behind the bar. <laughs> You really don't look. You thought oh, that's nuts, uh, and you become. Pre- they're like your kids. If someone bad mouths them, you think, really? You talking to me? <laughs> yeah, you talk. You want to take this outside, buddy? Yeah, I'm terrible. I, my wife has to stop me. My kids. <laughs> people, I thought, oh god, am I? I'm in that bad temper. It, it's well, yeah. You, you get protective, and some people don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm old enough and grumpy enough to tell people that. Yeah, you can now finally say to people, you know what? You <laughs> you know shit. <laughs> I, I try not to say that. that. That's rude. But you try, you know, there's some things I just don't understand. You know, here's a great example. Jager bombs. Oh, God, yes. Uh, people don't deny it. They go out there and they drink. Uh, I, I, I'm just getting old. But my kids will drink them. I think, are you kidding me? <laughs> no, I, I know the guys from Jager Monster. Thank God. I mean, there's family business. They're, they're, they're making far too much money, and I'm just jealous. Right, okay. <laughs> but people drink some stuff that you think, well, Really, does it matter what quality goes into what goes out there? And uh, you know, God bless them. But but there are it's about there's maybe I, I tell you it's as low as this. There's about five to seven percent of people who go out there and are really conscious of what they're drinking and want to drink better. Now they'll drink better beer, they'll drink better wine. And it's not if you can afford it. They should be more careful about it. It's not that one spirit's bad. I mean, I could take show you a gin. It's not that expensive. It's really good. I won't tell you what it is, but you don't have to pay a lot of money for and, and by the same token I can take you to a gin that's very craft distilled and a whiskey and it's the same company and you think Jesus God that's awful <laughs> because there's no maturation going into the whiskey and because the, the, the gin I don't know what they've made it from but, mm-hmm. but people, people talk about it in their hushed tones and they go this has been recommended and here's the other thing I hate these gurus that set himself up as it got 97 points in something spectator you think really why don't you just try it and see? There's a guideline here. I think people should be more adventurous in trying stuff. Go to a bar, talk to the bar and say, can I try a couple of these? And they'd be happy to do it. I may charge you a little bit for it, but sure. then you find something you like and at least you're happy ordering something. Mm. Sorry, but I don't know where that came. <laughs> well, no, it's, 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 a, it's a good point though. I mean, and that's another thing that I've heard from people on the sales side of, of spirits is, you know, you really want to make friends with bartenders, especially as they start to carry your spirit, just just for the simple reason that a, a patron comes in and they say, I want to try something new. You want that bartender to say, oh, you should try some Edinburgh gin. Have you tried this? This is a new thing we're carrying. You want to be the new thing that they recommend to people who don't know what to drink. I don't mind, but it's nice to have that happen. I mean, that's rare that happens. I don't have mm-hmm. enough, you know, uh, uh, full power out there to make it happen. <laughs> my, my guys are pretty well and very good, but they don't have that enough people and then try and get it into Southern Wines and Spirits are very good but you know you've seen the size of their book it's so difficult but they've, they've brought out very interestingly an artisanal um, sales group who are good and they're, they're in uh, LA and San Francisco I think they've got some in New York now and cultivating those guys is important but yeah 
<laughs> it's really the, the, the bar test, the 60-second test. is A guy called Art Hancock, who was the marketing director years ago for Brown Foreman, Jack Daniels, he told me something really interesting. I, I, I think he's still alive. He's a fantastic old guy. He said, if they can't call for your product, it's not worth it. <laughs> and if, if the bar guy can't describe it in five seconds what it is, it's not worth it. Wow. So, oh yeah, I, said, I mean, okay, um, Jack Daniels in Korea is called Johnny Crow because they can't say Jack Daniels. Really? Yeah, they call it Johnny Crow. And so everyone knows what that is. That's good. So the bar test is critical. So if you're going to be bringing in old white lightning or something, um, you better be able to call for it. Mm. And the bar guys better know what it's about. Otherwise, you're just buying some infuriator. I don't know. Infuriator, <laughs> yeah. Well, so someone goes out and they purchase a bottle of Edinburgh gin. Can you share one cocktail or cocktail recipe that you think really captures kind of the best way of enjoying it? What's one recipe you'd recommend someone try with your gin? Do you know, with the fruit gins, with with, with, with our little fruit liqueurs, I, I use um, sparkling wine and it's great. It's easy to do and it's very refreshing. Yeah. I, 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 I like straight gin and tonic. I, I like straight gin and tonic. Use a good tonic. I'm not recommending any tonic, but if people make their own tonic, even better. But <laughs> a good and. Uh, for, for, for me, I like to see a freshly zested orange peel in it. And that makes a big difference for me. I'm a big fan of citrus anyway and freshness. It's a, well, a well-made martini is great as well. I mean, our cannonball gin with Szechuan pepper is fantastic with a, with a good vermouth. Not too dry. You can be silly about that, but reasonably dry. And, uh, and a nice olive. That, that's fantastic. But make sure the martini glass is chilled. Okay. You know, it's such a simple drink to make and it works really well. Very and, cool. Well, I, I, you know, I got references. I mean, I, I was at the Manhattan Cocktail Competition, and I, I was yes. Yeah, so, and, and Negronis are excellent. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, some people make them better than others. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Just, just one last question for you: uh, How can people visit your distillery? You have a bar associated with it. When, when are the times people can come by and, and see what you're doing? Well, it, it's at the end of Princess Street. It's it's uh, Shandwick Place. It's underneath the Rutland Hotel. It's downstairs. We open at uh, 10 o'clock in the morning. You can come in, you can have a tour, tell you all about gin making, and, and you can have a look at brand distills. You can even make your own gin. Mondays, we go all the way through. We, we, in Monday nights is our trade night. We take guys, bartenders from, from, from town in and other people who are interested. God knows, we have bankers there and show them how we make it. <laughs> uh, we, that's Mondays, but uh, after five o'clock, it turns into Heads and Tails Bar, and, and that goes on till one in the morning. Very cool. Well, Alex, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time and really walking us through Edinburgh Gin. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Anytime. Thank Thanks. you.